Good morning, church. Today's New Testament reading, uh, we are continuing John chapter 12. The title is The Plot to Kill Lazarus. We're reading verses 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were, were going away and believing in Jesus. And, our, and the sermon text for today is Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is the word of our living God. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, music team. Thank you, church family, for your continued prayers for all of our folks that are sick, uh, for Brother Keith and uh, his continued recovery from getting that new heart. Um, uh, for Gabriel, uh, we grieve with you, brother, and uh, we're, we're sad with you. And uh, uh, that, uh, that funeral service will be Tuesday, uh, November 29th at 11 a.m. We'll We'll be sending you the details uh, for that, the place, the address, and everything. But uh, Tuesday, December, uh, November, Tuesday, November 29th at 11 a.m. Um, the springboard text for our continued uh, study of the names of Jesus, I think, sums up why we're doing this study. Uh, for in Him, Him being Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And by studying the names of Jesus, we get to kind of tap into that phrase, fullness of God. We'll, we'll never get to the bottom of it. We'll never reach the heights of it. We'll never fully understand uh, that phrase in this life and on this planet. But one day we will be fully dwelling with the fullness of God. And so uh, our feeble brains uh, take on this endeavor to study Jesus and get to know him a little bit better day by day, moment by moment, uh, and a little bit more understanding of what Colossians 1.19 means. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Like last Sunday, I want to open with Charles Spurgeon. Uh, I don't think you can go too wrong opening with the Prince of Preachers. Uh, he said this, the more you know about Christ, the less you, will you be satisfied with superficial views of him. Let me repeat that. The more you know about Christ, the less will you be satisfied with superficial views of him, shallow views of him. Allow me to paraphrase that great line, not to improve upon it, of course, but to, sub to substitute some specific thoughts, okay, from uh, the feeble mind of this preacher. Um, the more you know about Christ, the less you, you will be satisfied to simply accept him as Savior. Now, we delved into that last week when we studied the name Savior, because the more you realize who Jesus is, the more you understand that accepting him as Savior won't, won't cut it. <laughs> that doesn't save you, like we talked about last week. So, I won't go into detail again. Romans 10.9 doesn't say, if you accept Jesus as Savior, you will be saved. No, it says, if you confess him as Lord. You confess him as Lord, you will be saved. We, we've been given a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the more, the more you know about Christ, the less you're going to 
be satisfied with the superficial view uh, that he's Savior only. Uh, Another way to say it possibly, the more you know about Christ, the less you'll be satisfied to merely tack him onto your existing life in an attempt to escape hell. The more you know Jesus, the better you know Jesus, the deeper you know Jesus, the more you realize he's not someone you just add to your existing life. He becomes your life. That's exactly what Paul said in Colossians 3, beginning at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, your old self, the old you has died. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That doesn't sound like just tacking him on, does it? (laughs) No. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then Paul says this, when Christ, who is your life. He doesn't say, when Christ, whom you've tacked on to your existing life so you can keep doing what you've been doing. No, when Christ who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Again, uh, paraphrasing Spurgeon, the more you know about Christ, the less you will be satisfied with being a SMO. Now, we all know what a SMO is, right? Visitors might not. SMO, Sunday morning only uh, Christians, Sunday morning only professing Christians, Uh, The more you know about Christ, the less you will be satisfied with the view of him that moves you to think that all you have to do is tip your hat to him once a week, show up in a building and take a nap, uh, and being surrounded by other Christians. No, no, the more you know Christ, the, the more you realize that won't cut it. The less you'll be satisfied with just tipping your hat to him. The more you know about Christ, the less you will be tempted to be a red-letter Christian. A red-letter Christian. You know what that is, right? Red-letter Christian. Those are the folks who, uh, who, who hold these unbiblical views, and you can fill in the blank. They hold these unbiblical views along with their sympathizers, and they limit Jesus' words to the red letters in the Gospels. Well, I don't like red-letter Bibles. They limit Jesus' words to the red letters that are in the Gospels and claim that he never talked about that, you fill in the blank. Jesus never talked about this particular sin. So therefore, uh, it's okay for me to do it. It's okay for me to sympathize with those that do it, that that arrogantly and pridefully do it. Let's be sure we understand something this morning or be reminded of something this morning. Every word of the Bible is what Jesus said, okay? Let's make sure we remember that very clearly. And finally, one more example. The more you know about Christ, the less you will be satisfied with seeing him as your co-pilot. Now, I haven't seen this bumper sticker in a long time. Back in the 80s, it was a very popular bumper sticker. God is my co-pilot. Jesus is my co-pilot. Okay, and I'm I'm glad I haven't seen one of those in a while because Jesus is not our co-pilot. Okay, he's the pilot. He's the plane. He's the atmosphere. He's everything. He's everything. What does the Bible say? In him, we live and move and have our being. And the fullness of God dwells in him. In him are all the mysteries of wisdom and knowledge. So to claim that he's your co-pilot, that's blasphemous. That's blasphemous. He's not your co-pilot. He's everything. He's everything. So, as born-again people who are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, may we never be satisfied with superficial views of our Lord. Spurgeon continues from that quote by saying this, the more deeply You study his transactions in the eternal covenant, his engagements on your behalf as the eternal security, 
and the fullness of his grace that shines in all his offices, the more truly will you see the king in his beauty. Learn to look at him this way. Long increasingly to see Jesus. Yes, church, let's long increasingly to see Jesus this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for another time together. Thank you for another Lord's Day. We do lift up those that are away from us this morning because of sickness. We pray that you would bring healing and recovery and good health, that their, uh, their bodies would prosper as their soul prospers. God, we pray for those that are traveling, as Justin has already prayed. Bring them back safely to us. We pray for Gabriel and his family and their grief. Walk with them through this valley of the shadow of death. And now, Father, speak to us from your precious word. Help us to look at Jesus properly. Help us to not be content with shallow, superficial views of him with with uh, mundane uh, catchphrases about who he is help us to not be satisfied with that help us to to seek him with all that we are help us to long increasingly to see jesus and as we do that you promise you have promised to transform us into his likeness. So do that once again today, Father. And we'll give you all the thanks and all the glory. And now, Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the corporate ponderings of our heart this morning will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Okay, we're on the letter S. Uh, We're going to get three S titles today. We probably won't finish the last one. I'll go ahead and tell you that right now. Uh, But uh, we're going to look at Son of God, Son of Man, and Servant, God's Servant. Uh, First, Son of God, Son of God. uh, We take a Christmas verse here to kick us off on this this title. Luke chapter 1, you're familiar with this. uh, The appearance of the angel to uh, Mary's mother, human mother, uh, Mary. And Mary said to the angel, beginning at verse 34, Luke chapter 1 Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since she's, he, the angel's already told her she's going to have the Messiah, okay? She's going to have this child, and he, she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, the Son of God. This title for Jesus is... I guess it's probably one of the most uh, common and most well-known. It's highlighted in the Apostles' Creed that we say together every fifth Sunday of the month. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Wayne Grudem writes this in his Systematic Theology. Though the title Son of God can sometimes be used to refer to Israel as in Matthew 2.15, or to man as created by God in Luke 3.38, or to redeemed man generally in Romans chapter 8, verses 14, 19, and 23, there are nevertheless instances in which the phrase Son of God refers to Jesus as the heavenly eternal Son who is equal to God himself. This is especially true in John's gospel where Jesus is seen as the unique son from the father. As John begins his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then you bounce down to verse 14 and read this, and the word, that word that was with God and was God, That word became flesh, became human, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son 
from the Father, full of grace and truth. In our study of the title God-Man, you know, we've covered a little bit of this. You know, we are, as born-again people, we are little s, sons and daughters of God. But Jesus is the only capital S Son of God because He is the Son of God by nature. We are not. By nature, we are what? Children of wrath, right. We get a new nature, we're born again, and we become little s sons and daughters of God. But Jesus is the only one that by nature is the capital S Son of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 is the classic text describing Jesus as the unique Son of God. In, that, in those verses we read this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, that's the days we, we're in, okay, the last days began after the ascension of Jesus. We're in the last days. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, by his son. I love that old Michael Cart song, you know, uh, the final word. Final word was Jesus. He needed no other one. He's, he's spoken to us by his son, God's final word, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world created the world. There's equality with God right there, equating the title Son of God with deity. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. That could connect with our springboard text. He's the fullness of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's exactly like God the Father. The Son of God is is the exact imprint of the nature of God. These are are great pondering phrases. These are deep phrases. These are not superficial views of Jesus. This is where you want to swim. This is where you want to dwell. This is where you want to ponder. Not on Jesus as my co-pilot. This is where you want to be. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe. He upholds the universe. And, he, and he's your co-pilot? Really? So you're upholding the universe with him? Come on. This is where you want to be, beloved. These are the kind of texts you want to live in, swim in. As Scotty Smith says often, marinate in. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, showing that he's a separate being, but at the same time, the exact imprint of God the Father, of the Creator. That's mind-blowing. But that's where I want to be. I want to long to increasingly see this this Jesus, this Son of God, who who is the fullness of God and the radiance of His glory and the exact imprint of who He is. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This name that we're studying, more excellent than angels. Oh, man, it just takes your breath away. Your heart starts beating a little bit faster. The demons knew who he was, right? Mark 3.11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. The Jewish religious leaders understood what he was claiming. John 5.18, this is what's why the Jews were seeking 
all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The enemies of Jesus knew what the title Son of God meant. And that's why they were trying to kill him. That's why they did kill him. The centurion at the cross, as Jesus was being killed, recognized him. Mark 15, verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, truly this man was the Son of God. His disciples were constantly acknowledging this truth. John the Baptist in John 134, Nathaniel in John 141, Martha in John 11:27, in the boat after the calming of the storm as a group, <laughs> in unison, as a chorus. In Matthew 14:33, truly you are the Son of God. Peter speaking for the group in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. God. Saul, who became Paul in Acts 9.20, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. His resurrection proved it. Romans 1.4, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. And the Bible, beloved, the Bible was written so that we would acknowledge it. John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the obvious question is, is have you acknowledged that? Have you, have you responded to what the, the, the reason the Bible was written? That you would acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Have you, have you done that? If not, good, hey, guess what? Good news. Today's the day. Today's the day of salvation. Jesus, the Son of God. Well, he's also the son of man. Now, what does that mean, the son of man? This is the third most used title for Jesus after Christ. Christ is number one, used so much that many people think it's his last name, but it's a title, Jesus the Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one. Christ is number one. Number two title is Lord, Lord, Jesus Christ our Lord, but Son of Man comes in third. Son of Man is the third most used title. It's used 84 times in the Gospels. And fun fact to know and tell, only used by Jesus to describe himself. In fact, it is the title that Jesus most often used to describe him. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself when he was speaking. The only other person to use this title with the definite article the, the Son of Man, okay, not a Son of Man. You know, sometimes we read about prophets being called Son of Man, but the Son of Man, the only other human recorded in Scripture to use this title, the Son of Man, is Stephen in Acts 7, 56, right before he succumbed and died to the stoning he was getting. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, there's often confusion about this title, and I was in that group uh, for a long time because many people think, maybe most people, I don't know, maybe what, I don't know what you're thinking this morning, but many people think, as I once did, that this was some sort of uh, humble designation that emphasized the humanity of Jesus, 
uh, and his identification with the hu- human race. Sort of like, the, sort of like a f- the flip side of the Son of God. Okay, you got Son of God, that points to his deity. Then you flip it over and you got Son of Man, which points uh, to his humanity. Now, while there is obviously some truth to that, it, it, there's much, much more to it. Remember, Jesus was not the son of a man, okay? He had no human father. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Scripture never calls Joseph Jesus' father. It always refers to the child of his mother, the mother's child. Joseph is never called the father of Jesus in the scriptures. R.C. Sproul gives us this reminder. Although the title son of man has reference to Jesus' solidarity with humanity, there is something about the biblical use of this title which focuses on the transcendent majesty of Christ. This phrase, the son of man, was not invented by Jesus in the first century but has its roots in Old Testament literature, particularly in the book of Daniel. Okay, so since Dr. Sproul mentioned the book of Daniel, let's go there. Daniel uh, chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And we'll read a couple of uh, short passages here. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel records his vision. Uh, we'll pick up, we'll pick it, start at verse 9. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. So you've got this being referred to as the Ancient of Days, which the great majority of scholars believe this is, this is a vision of God in a somewhat of a courtroom setting, okay? Uh, the court sat in judgment, and books were opened. And then we bounce down to verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There's our phrase, okay? And he came to the Ancient of Days. So this son of man is coming before the great judge, the creator, God, the father, the Ancient of Days. This, and we've, we've, we've talked about this before because our view is this is, the, this is a picture of the ascension of Jesus' return to glory. Okay? One like a son of man, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, see, he's done his work. He glorified the Father on earth. He completed his mission. Remember what he cried from the cross it is finished. It is finished. The work of salvation has been done. God raised him to prove that it had been done and that he accepted the sacrifice. And now this is a vision or view most scholars think of the return of Jesus to glory to come back before the Father. And look at what the Father does. Verse 14, and to him, this Son of Man was given a given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Commenting on this phrase, uh, Dr. Sproul continues, essentially the title Son of Man is used not to describe a human being whose sphere of operations is the earth, but a heavenly being. It concerns one who left the presence of the Ancient of Days in heaven, became human, and at the completion of his sojourn, returned to his place of origin, heaven itself, where he was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And that's why one of the titles we've studied, he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He rules and reigns. He rules in heaven and earth. He's over all things. 
His rules and everlasting dominion. Recall what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. There you go. So what's Jesus saying? That no one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. No one has returned to heaven except the one who came from heaven. And then he uses the title, the Son of Man. And in John 5, verse 27, he says this, And he, God, Jesus is talking about God, God has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. So you see, so the point I'm trying to get across to you this morning is, is this. The Son of Man is much, much This title is much, much more than just identifying Jesus with humanity. Jesus does identify with humanity, and we're thankful for that. Because if he he hadn't, we'd still be headed for hell. We'd still be on the pathway to hell. He has identified with humanity. He took on flesh and blood like us. A, A body was given to him, as the author of Hebrews says, so that he could be nailed to a cross. Praise the Lord. He, he, he's, 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 he's just like us in every way. He sympathizes with us in every way except without sin. He has no sin. So he does identify with man. But the title Son of Man is much, much more than that. And it's linked back to this passage in Daniel. Finally, uh, on this point, consider these three incidents uh, that point to Son of Man as a title of deity. First, in Matthew Uh, chapter 9, beginning at verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts. Now, this is the uh, Jesus healing the the paralytic, okay? And uh, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Now, notice what Jesus says. We've been, we've been in this passage before, but quick reminder. He says, which is easier to say? He doesn't say which is easier to do, okay? Which is easier to say? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to prove that that's been done. So it's harder to say, take up your bed and walk because right away, <laughs> you're going to either be have egg all over your face or you're going to be proved right. So which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? And then verse 6, but that you may know that, look at the title he uses, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he did. So There we see clearly, Son of Man, authority on earth to forgive sins. Who's the only one that can forgive sins? God. Son of Man equals God. Here's another one, Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Pick it up at verse 23. This is one of those Sabbath controversies. Jesus was always getting in uh, debates and arguments with the religious leaders over this issue. Mark chapter 2, start at verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence? which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man, there's the title, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another clear claim to deity. And then one more, Matthew 26 Matthew 26, this is Jesus before Caiaphas and the council. 
Pick it up at verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men, men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So Caiaphas uses the title Son of God. Look how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, you have said so. In other words, you've said it right. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man. He equates Son of God with Son of Man. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a clear connection to the Daniel text that we started this point with. And the council would have known exactly what he was saying. And we see that they do. They get all hot and bothered. They start tearing their clothes, you know. The high priest tore his robes and said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Okay, so there you go. Conclusion of this point. When Jesus used this title for himself, he was claiming more than that he was human. He was claiming to be God. While there is a connection to his humanity, and, that, and we are thankful for that, he was claiming more than that. Son of Man is another title for Christ's deity. Okay, one more today. We'll, we'll start this. We won't finish it probably. Uh, Jesus is God's servant. Jesus is God's servant. In, in Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man, there's the, he's using the title again, even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this servant aspect of Jesus is connected to the ransom aspect that we've talked about under the letter R. So all these names are pretty much, you, you can make connections to all these titles, right? Okay. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He didn't come to, be, to lord it over you. He came to serve. And then in Philippians 2, Paul comments on this, verse 7, in describing Jesus, he says he emptied himself, emptied himself, or another, another translation, made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, the prophet Isaiah, be turning to Isaiah, because that's where we're going to camp for a little bit. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the promised Messiah as God's servant. And we're going to see it in Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. So turn there with me. We're going to ponder his prophetic words together. And as we ponder, let, let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And at the same time, as followers of Jesus, because as we're beholding him, what's happening? We're being made like him, right? So we want to make some applications to our own lives regarding this idea of being a servant. Because we're called to walk as Jesus walked, right? 1 John 2, 6. So let's read Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. And you could also go to Matthew 12 if you wanted to, because Matthew 12 uh, pretty much quotes this verbatim, saying, thus Jesus fulfilled this prophecy that we're going to read here in Isaiah 42. So you can also find this in Matthew 12, beginning at verse 17, almost the exact words from Isaiah, saying that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of him being God's servant. So Isaiah 42, verse 1, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. 
He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Okay, so this is a great passage, and we see uh, several points uh, or several qualities of this, this servant, this messianic servant, this servant of God that Isaiah is, is predicting. And I want us to ponder these points together. I'm going to try to get the first three, and then we'll the fourth one I want to elaborate on a little bit, and I don't want to do it at the end of a message, okay? I want you to be fresh, okay? So here we go. Um, as God's servant, here's the first point. As God's servant, Jesus displayed dependence. Now, this is a great mystery here. It's one of the great mysteries of the incarnation. Verse 1a says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Whom I, I, God, is, God is the one speaking here. Behold my servant, okay, the predicted Messiah, whom I, God the Father, uphold. So Jesus was upheld by the Father. Uh, alternate translations for the word that's translated uphold here are strengthen, support, hold fast. As 100% man, Jesus was totally dependent upon the Father. Now, this is deep mystery. This, our brains start, you know, melting down, and here's Son of Man, Son of God, the exact imprint of His nature, the radiance of the glory of God, also totally dependent upon the Father. Jesus hinted at this several times in the Gospels. Let me give you a few examples. John 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. I'm totally dependent. My actions are totally dependent on me seeing what the Father's doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So I'm totally dependent on what the Father's doing. i got to see what He's doing before I act. That's, that's, that's deep mystery to me. It may be easy for you, but that's deep. But it's what the Scriptures say. In John 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. That's Jesus speaking. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I can do nothing on my own. Now, think about it. There's a direct correlation to us, right? Who, the followers of this God-man, who is the exact imprint of God, but can do nothing on his own. We were created in the image of God, right? And apart from Jesus, we're what? Nothing. There you go. What a connection. Jesus is our model. That's why we want to fix our eyes on him. We want to wake up and fix our eyes on him. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. You mean Jesus has to be taught? He has to learn? Well, he's 100% man. Do people have to learn? Yes. Explain that, Butch. I can't. I just bow down. I bow down. I fall at his feet. I just fall. But that's what the scripture says. As God's servant, Jesus was totally dependent upon the Father. And the lesson for us is that's where we want to be. That's where we want to be. As the perfect human being without sin in thought, word, or deed. Jesus was totally dependent upon God. Somehow, some way, God in the flesh was totally dependent on God the Father. Ponder that one this week. And He is the model we are striving for. 
imperfect, drastically imperfect human beings like us look or to look to the only perfect human being who was totally dependent on the Father. So may our dependence on Jesus grow. And I think it will result in a life uh, more fulfilled, maybe more joyful, maybe more thankful, uh, maybe less anxious, less stressful, maybe. We'll become like Jesus, and that's a good thing. All right, number two, second point, verse 1b, we read, my chosen in whom my soul delights. In whom my soul delights. That's the focus. As God's servant, Jesus received approval. He received approval. Okay? And the phrase uh, in the next line, I put my spirit upon him. What does that remind us of? I put my spirit upon him. That reminds us of Jesus' baptism where God said audibly, audibly, they, they heard an audible voice, okay? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son I'm with whom, in whom I delight. And that's what the prophecy is. My chosen in whom my soul delights. God repeated those words again audibly from the cloud at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So, as God's servant, Jesus received approval. God delighted in Jesus. What's the application for us as followers of God's servant? Well, what are your goals in life? What are your goals in life? Take a moment to ponder that. Think about that. Is approval from God one of them? Do you long for God to delight in you? Is that your number one goal? Do you long for God to say, this is one of my little s sons and daughters. In him, in her, I delight. I think that needs to be our number one goal. And then we pray for God to let all the specifics of our life, whether it be as a father, as a mother, as a businessman, as a leader, as a pastor, as a deacon, as an elder, as a homeschool teacher, as a, as a public school teacher, as a private school teacher, whatever it is, God help all the specifics of my life rightly come under this umbrella of pleasing you. 2 Corinthians 5.9. Paul said, we make it our aim, our goal, our desire, our longing to please him. As God's servant, that's what Jesus did. And as we behold Jesus, we're becoming right, more like him. So our heart should be, God, I want to please you. I want to please you. Does sleeping in church please you? I want to please you. Okay? That's my desire. That's my goal. Pleasing you. When it's all over, when the dust is settled, and every chip from every bowl has fallen where it may, when this life ends, do you want to hear from your Creator and Redeemer? Well done good and faithful servant. I have delighted in you and I will delight in you for all eternity. May our lives both individually and corporately bring God delight. One more point real quick and then we'll wrap up and we'll finish up next week. Now, uh, the third one comes from verse 2. It says, this servant of God, this servant, Jesus, the Messiah will not cry out or lift up his voice or make it heard 
in the street. In other words, as God's servant, Jesus displayed modesty. He displayed modesty. He was not flamboyant. He didn't call attention to himself. We've already read from Philippians 2.7. He emptied himself. He became nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In Matthew chapter 4, we read about his temptation in the wilderness. What, the, what was one of the things the devil tempted him to do? One of the things the devil tried to get him to do was to make a big show. Hey, go up to the top pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself down. And God will send these angels to, to, to save you, to catch you. And it'll be a, boy, it'll be great. Throw yourself off the top. Make a big show. And Jesus said, no, nah, not going to do that. Oh, but come on, Jesus, it'll get everybody's attention. Nope. Nope. The Bible says you don't put the God to the test. Remember the religious hypocrites of Jesus' day? Well, they, they always wanted a miracle. They, show us something. Show us a sign. And Jesus never gave in to that. So what's the application for us? Are we content to be unknown? Or, or, or do we require that people know about our service for it to really count? Are we content to be unknown? Let me, let me wrap up. I'll get those last two points next week. We'll pick up there next week. I've got two more points under this service, under servant, uh, Jesus being God's servant. But let, let's, let's ponder some things as we wrap up here. Final word today is from me. I've been quoting a lot of people at the final, but final words from me, okay? So, man, that might not excite you too much, but here we go. And it, is, it involves some final thoughts on servanthood. Since we've been talking about Jesus as God's servant, okay? That's what we've been pondering, and we'll continue to ponder next week, okay? And I really, that uh, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I really want us to ponder that. Be, be, be pondering that this week. What is, what is God telling us there? Okay? And I, I really want to unpack that one. And I didn't want to try to rush it in today. But regarding servanthood, let's, let's ponder for a minute think, as, we, as we move to a close here. Our Christian life is wonderfully dotted with unique moments of inspiration, Right? We call them mountaintop experiences, okay? I, as Justin's mentioned last Wednesday, our annual Thanksgiving dinner is always one for me. You say, well, but man, you're easily pleased. Yeah, I am. I really am. I, I just love being around you. That, that's a mountaintop experience for me. But we don't do that Thanksgiving dinner every week, do we? No, we don't. Uh, as a former youth minister, uh, with, with camps and stuff, oh, man, I can think of a lot of mountaintop experiences, and some of you can too. God graciously gives us those. But we must never consider those moments as the standard way of Christian living. Sometimes, and probably more often than not, we're in the valley, right? We don't live on the mountaintop. Sometimes people discourage us. Sometimes providence deals us pain and heartache. And that's when we must remember our experience and experiences on the mountaintop is not the standard, okay? Our service in the valley is the standard. Dear church family, let's remember that. Our service in the valley is standard. Considering others more important than ourselves is the standard. Outdoing one another in showing honor is the standard. Because we have this tendency to always be looking for wonder in our experiences. I, I, I can remember painfully 
<laughs> someone departing from us because our service was like a schoolroom and we didn't have enough exciting things happening. A lot of people think that way. If there's not excitement, if there's not wonder, if there's not going and blowing, then it's, it's, it, something's wrong. Martin Luther rightly called this the theology of glory. The theology of glory. This constant hungering for mountaintop experiences and big deals and big events and whatever. But the message of our preaching, the message of the church's preaching must be not the theology of glory, but the theology of the cross. The theology of the cross. We must remember Jesus' call to take up our cross and follow him. That is the standard. Glory comes later. Glory comes after our sojourn in this demon-possessed valley of the world is over. Our best life will not be now, no matter what anybody tells you. Our best life is later. Our best life is after this life. See, it's one thing to go through a mountaintop experience, which God, in His amazing grace and His providential timing, gives us. We've all had them, and we love them. And, and we, we don't back down from thanking God for them and from loving them. You, you know what I'm talking about, those times that some people call a God thing. It was a God thing. That's one thing, okay. but it's quite another to go through every day and every moment of life glorifying God, seeking His approval, trying to please Him when there is no witness and there's no one watching and there's no limelight and there's no one paying attention, but often even detracting and discouraging you. No emotional high, et cetera, et cetera. But guess what? Guess what, beloved? Those times are God things too. Please know that. Please know that. I'm begging you to know that. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we will get off the roller coaster of emotional ups and downs, which do nothing but hinder our sanctification. Please hear what I'm saying. May the Holy Spirit take my feeble words and drive them deep into your heart. The overarching call of the Christian life is to fix our eyes firmly on Jesus and plod steadily forward, one step at a time, whether it's on the mountaintop or going up the mountain or in the valley or the lowest valley, Whatever, one step at a time, eyes on Jesus, one step at a time as servants of the Most High God. That is our calling. That is the plan. That has always been the plan. From the first century onward, that's always been the plan. When the mountaintop times come, we humbly and joyfully Thank Him. But we are not depressed or stressed or anxious or worried when we return to the valley to continue our steady march, march forward for the glory of God because that is the normal Christian life. Is it, okay, is it okay to be on the mountaintop? Yes, 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 yes. Should we crave those experiences and allow them to be the standard of a strong spiritual life? No, 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 a thousand times no. We must learn to live and be content in the mundane and the ordinary for the glory of God. For that is the normal Christian life. And our best life comes 
after this normal life is over. We want to be able to say with Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I fought the good fight. Man, I fought the good fight. And it does involve fighting. We can't be passive. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I finished the plotting. And I've kept the faith. In other words, I have endured. So, dear church family, for the glory of God, endure. Endure. Press on. Persevere. As servants of the Most High God, being made in the likeness of the servant of God, who was Son of Man and Son of God. Let's pray together. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for the model that he is for our lives. Help us to fix our eyes on him and run the race that you've marked out for us. That one day we may hear you say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. I have delighted in you. That's our deep, deep longing, Father. That's the prayer of our heart, the cry of our soul. Please, let it happen. For your glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.